Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Besides the fact that there's still a pandemic going on outside, I just want to say, once again, and maybe this is going to be a weekly thing. Maybe it's going to be this is the last time and people will get it. Wear a mask. Just wear a mask. The virus transmits through people talking or singing or being around other people and getting droplets from their spit on them. Wear a mask. Do yourself a favor. Do other people a favor. If you like us, do us a favor. Wear a mask. How's your day going? I Pretty good. I said it already. <laughs> pretty good. Um, it's so annoying. It's what? Re- like everything. The fact that like if people wore masks. Yes. And the transmission rate went way down because of it. Yes. Like this thing would be over so much quicker than I don't really the way under- it's playing out. I don't understand why people wouldn't wear a mask at this point. Like, how does it really affect your freedoms? Well, you know? it's, that, it's that people don't believe in it, and therefore they see it as like a middle finger to... Don't believe which part? They don't believe that this is actually like... Like, they don't... Well, there's a couple things. People don't believe that the coronavirus is real. People don't believe that the masks work. And people also see it as a... Why would I listen to the government or the scientists or the people, you know, anybody who tells me to do this thing, they don't like doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that all those three things, it's so dumb. It's just like, just like you don't have a degree. You don't work in science. Listen to those people who actually do work in science. Right. So let me ask you this then. Neither yeah. of us have degrees. Yeah. Neither one of us are scientists or epidemiologists or right. anything, right? We just sure. read the news. We understand, uh, you know, common sense, mm-hmm. seemingly. Yeah. Why would people listen to us? Because we are listening to the scientists. Right. So do we think that there's people out there who listen to this podcast and it gets on their radar, gets in their ears, and don't wear masks? Yes. Yes. Okay. I okay. do. Okay. If you're listening to this podcast right now, don't be an idiot anymore. You're an idiot if you're not wearing a mask. I don't care if you're in New York or California or Georgia or Florida or Alabama or Arizona or any of the Carolinas. If you're living on this planet right now and you have access to a mask. Which you do. Wear it. That's it. Wear it. Like... (laughs) <laughs> we were we were walking with Peter Rosenberg uh, recently. Mm-hmm. We were all wearing masks, and Peter did say to us that he hated the surgical masks that we were wearing. He said, hey, "I hate your guys' masks." And you know what I said? I don't care. I don't care. I'm not out here to be fashionable. If you want to be fashionable, you can buy a, a mask with Conway's face on it, with uh, the American flag on it, with uh, the Wu Tang symbol on it. These are real things. I see them every day. You can wear those or you could be, you know, like us and not well, care. Peter, Peter said that we looked like we had diapers on our face. So Peter said that. But also, that, it's it's funny because it's not like Peter's the most fashion forward. Well, how about this? Yesterday, Jeff and I went for a walk and we were on the Upper West Side and we're about like six or seven blocks from our apartment and Jeff goes, oh, is that 
Niles G. And, and then I was like, oh, yeah, it is. And, and there's Loki. So two of our friends happened to be with some of their friends. And they were outside a local establishment and I guess waiting for some drinks or something like that. And so we stopped by to, to give them, you know, elbow pounds and, and say what's up. And and uh, I complimented Lo on his Jordans that he was wearing. And then I jokingly referred to the outfits that we were wearing as this is called we didn't expect to see anybody and Lowe responded that's kind of what you guys do all the time and i was like like ugh what, like, what? <laughs> what and then he goes no 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 i didn't mean it like that i just mean you're not like you know you guys are in fashion like, forward and we're like uh, no like, stop digging stop this hole saying that <laughs> so our masks don't work with one friend our outfits don't work with another friend i've given up except for the fact that i'm not out here trying to get sick or get other people sick you bottom did, line yeah you did just get tested I did get tested. Um, I went to the doctor and they gave me the COVID test and the antibody test. I have not had COVID according to the test and I do not have COVID right now. Um, so I remain vigilant. But even if I did, I don't know. It's just, you know, I'm trying to be a good neighbor, a good human. And I hope that people out there would be too. It's not the biggest sacrifice to wear a fucking mask. Just do it, you know? So anyway, that's that. But, uh, I know, I know one thing that you wanted to discuss was the fact that we actually left the Upper West Side a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. We helped our friend Alex move from Bushwick, Brooklyn, to, uh, well, move his stuff to a storage space, and then he's going to move to a new apartment. Yeah, because, well, this is what I really want to talk about. Yeah. Alex yes. was out for a bike ride with his friend Stu, our friend Stu. Yes. And they get back to Alex's apartment, and they hear the water running. And he's like, I didn't leave the water running. And so he goes downstairs. He has a a duplex type of uh, apartment. And he sees his bathroom door open. And there is brown sewage water shooting out violently from the toilet. And just like, just, just destroying his apartment. Yeah, correct. So he had to move. He had to move. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The the worst the worst part of this, which has not been mentioned, is that his landlords have been completely absent since that moment. Um, so Alex had no recourse but to move. But like the worst thing that could possibly happen in a pandemic. Yeah, I and also the fact that like Roto Rooter um wasn't able to show up for a little while, and then like there was a curfew. There was a lot bad here. I think in my estimation moving you know, previous to this moving period would be a nightmare yeah movies ne- moving is never great no no no. i'm talking about even during a pandemic moving like i did yeah i just didn't want to go anywhere near that yeah the idea of moving because your apartment is flooded by sewage water that's that's worse that's it's that's really bad that's the nightmare and yeah. uh so anyway so we but we, alex is in good spirits now i was just talking <laughs> i was literally just texting him oh right shout, out, shout out to alex yeah. um and shout out to all of us friends who showed up and uh wore our masks as we helped carry stuff and had hand sanitizer and brought clorox wipes and you know i think that uh this is the reality we live in you know it's just like it's not such a sacrifice to carry around hand sanitizer it's not such a sacrifice to give people elbow bumps and to uh keep your distance and still be able to laugh and you know if you take a drink to lower your mask and then put it right back up listen guys if that's the worst we can we can do this and it's all to get to a point where we don't have to do this anymore yeah like 
people can't figure out short term versus long term, you know, like the short term people are like, I've had enough after four months, I need to travel, I need to be, you know, amongst other people, I need to, you know, not socially distance, I need to live my life as it was before. And it's like, we're not there. I think that people are just babies. Like, it, it's, it's a really unfortunate thing to be like, hey, like, I don't want to lose a year of my life either. Like, but that's what this is. That's all this is. We are losing a year and maybe more of our lives. And if you think back, to fight against it is just like, if you think back and making it's it worse been, for all of us, it's been a third of a year to this point yeah. or something like that. And I was listening to uh, the daily, the New York times um, podcast and which comes out daily, which is why it's called the daily. That's the name. Yeah. And they said that, you know, we've been dealing with this for half a year. So, you know, more than more than four months, it's really been six months that the, the virus has been, you know, in America. It is it's it's hard to consider that amount of time because one day you do wake up and it's like, oh, what happened to spring? You know, like like a total season is gone. But that's the reality. And it's like we made it this far. We could probably keep going. And if the fall is going to be really bad, don't get numb to this idea where it's like, oh, a thousand people are dying. That's a thousand Americans dying every day. Well, it's 365,000 Americans a year. So the possibility of getting up to 500,000 Americans dead this year is a reality. So do your best to not make it on that list, you know? Wear a mask. Do the least you can. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, wearing a mask doesn't preclude you from doing most of the stuff that you want to do and should do. So wear a mask. Anyway, Jeff, who's on the podcast today? <laughs> on the podcast today is Sam Crespo. Sam Crespo, Atlantic Records, vice president of uh, promotions. That's, uh, you know, radio. That is lifestyle. That is mix show. That is uh, a long career from Relativity Records to Tommy Boy to Def Jam to Atlantic Records, working with people like Tip and Lupe and Wiz and Uzi. And, you know, you go back to Fat Joe and Nori and Joe Budden. And, you know, this is a record industry man. This is a uh, esteemed guy in this business you talk to anybody in this business no one has a bad word to say about him he's one of those guys where it's like um the phil jackson tree mm -hmm. you know or like the bill belichick tree where you start off with one person and then you see throughout the industry the people who have that same direction and the same sort of uh ethos and value system in this business directly from somebody well sam crespo is one of those guys yeah. and and you see it with our friend uh los agando you see it with june cardona you see it with the aforementioned niles g you see it from a, a whole bunch of people and uh it goes straight back to sam crespo who uh has lived quite a life you know we get into it today talking about all those artists but you also talk about how he found out he had cancer and how he uh rebounded and has now been in remission for five years 
You talk about the birth of his daughter. You talk about what the music business really is, how it's transitioned here in New York City specifically, and then nationwide. We talk about DJs. We talk about rappers. We talk about producers. It's a fun conversation. Fun conversation. Dark time in this dark world, but we are making it through. If you appreciate our storytelling, our efforts, and our voice, go to patreon.com slash it's the real and contribute to this movement over there. Jeff, when do you want to get into this episode? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Issues of the Source, a.k.a. The Big Bang Theory. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. 40-year-old virgin, a.k.a. Picking up antibodies. Yo, what's up? It's Sam Crespo, a.k.a. The Forest Gump of Hip Hop. <laughs> yeah, it's your third favorite podcast to waste time with. It's the real. <laughs> Sam, what's happening? What's cracking, guys? What's up? Everything is good. Uh, listen, um, Sam, this is a very uh, weird time for a lot of jobs right now. Obviously, it's been uh, four months of staying inside. You're somebody uh, who does record promotions, street promotions, mix show promotions. You yes. have, for your whole career, been a very social and sociable person visiting the radio stations, making sure that you had that in-person relationship with the DJs. What have the last four months been like for you? Uh, it's been challenging to say the least, you know, um, like you said, you know, the, a lot of what I do is, you know, um, locally on the local level is, you know, going to the radio stations, whether it be power in New York, power 105 or hot 97 and, you know, meeting up with the DJs or going to mixer meetings there and, you know, creating a presence and a platform for your artists, you know, but, but outside of the business, just the, the, the humor interaction, right. The, the relationship building, the friendships, you know, some of those guys at both of those stations I've known for well over 10 years, maybe plus, you know, and, um, you know, it's tough. It makes it really hard. So when you check in with them via phone or via text or via, even if you do FaceTime, like I've done with a few of them, you know, it's not the same, you know, and um, the conversation also outside of the friendship and the work also gets convoluted with the sign of the times of what's going on right now. So it's been really challenging, you know, um, I think everybody's trying to make the best of it. But um, yeah, you know, I really miss those days. I really miss being able you know, to get on the train and, you know, go over to one of the radio stations and just kick it. Well, yeah, well, here's here's the most important question. Where yeah. is the heavy hitters retreat going to take place this year? Is it going to be at your house? You know what? Man, <laughs> I love those guys so much. And I had a blast in Mexico uh, last year that, it, you know what? They're more than welcome to come <laughs> to my Bronx apartment and maybe we could have a throwback. And, uh, as long as everyone like, has masks, right? Yeah. Just <laughs> 40 Mass, overweight and dudes. And we have to practice social distancing. <laughs> yeah. And everybody has to wash their hands. That's right. Well, that's going to be new for a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, uh, let's go back to the very, very beginning. Where are you originally yeah. from? I'm from the Bronx, New York. Whereabouts? Um, it's interesting. A couple of places uh, we moved around. But when I was first born, I, uh, 183rd. Um, not far from Bathgate Avenue yeah. in the Bronx. So, you know, it's a unique place because when I was born and now pretty much my early, early, early years, it was it was uh, right not too far away from Arthur Avenue. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like the hood right before Arthur Avenue. Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, for those who don't know, is a very heavily Italian, uh, Italian population. And, you know, they have their own community and, you know, it's it's still it's still Italian to this day, 
um, because I actually go there to buy some fresh seafood. Um, They got some great markets there. But yeah, you know, look, I was, you know, really close to there, but I was still in, quote unquote, the hood. And that was one area. Um, And then uh, my dad had a grocery store over on Park Avenue, not Park Avenue, Manhattan, (laughs) Park Avenue in the Bronx, which is um, along a, a railroad line that actually cuts across a Fordham University. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in Fordham Row on Valentine Avenue on Grand Concourse. And uh, a lot of my early years and in my very early teenage years were there. And, and so mm-hmm. your dad your dad had a grocery store. What kind of hours yeah. what kind of hours was he putting in? I mean brutal hours, you know, I I I, I you know when he first got into that line of work, that business when he became a uh, an entrepreneur, it was hard because, you know, he would leave early in the morning and he wouldn't close until, you know, 10 o'clock, right before 11 o'clock. So I wouldn't see him till, you know, him coming in, you know, um, midnight, you know, and then he would get up five in the morning and do it all over again. And how, how was your family situated? How many uh, siblings did you have? Uh, it's just me and my brother. Older or younger? Yeah, he's older. Older, yeah. Yeah, yeah older. What was the Bronx like as a kid? Like, you know, I, I know that, like, you can see the, the images of the 80s and, and uh, I'm guessing the 70s as well, where it's just like, th- those were tough times. Yeah. It, you know what? It's like I see a lot of documentaries where they documentaries about the economics of, of the Bronx back then in the 70s and 80s, you know, in the 90s. And, and, and you know, you see a lot of like documentaries about gangs, right? And then you see the footage and you remember it, but I don't remember it being that bleak. I don't remember, you know, being, you know, urban blight, right? I don't remember it like that. I remember having fun. I remember um, my friendships. I remember, you know, like I told you guys in the beginning when we first connected, you know, the birth of hip hop is the Bronx, it's the cradle. Yeah. So I remember all those days. I remember people with the boom boxes playing, you know, records from like Rapper's Delight to Kumo D, you know, Roxanne Shante, Real Roxanne, all those records, you know, little people walking by blaring those records off the boom box. You know, I remember those days. And um, when you see like what what history has, you know, spoken about the Bronx, about it being burning down and being like, you know, Fort Apache and the, like this, this, you know, wasteland. I grew up around then, but I remember the good times more so than, oh shit, you know, <laughs> we're, in, we're, in, we're in the ghetto, we're poor, you know? Yeah. Uh, I look at it now as a, somebody, an executive in the music business, and I'm like, shit, I was poor, you know? But, um, you know, I, I, I don't recall it the way history is kind of playing it back. Yeah. Well, what were you into growing up as a kid? I mean, I think I had, you know, a, a well-rounded childhood. You know, I was, I was into, you know, skateboarding. Mm-hmm. I was uh, into um, comic books. And, you know, uh, I was really into illustration at the time, you know. Um, and I think, uh, you know, my love for comic books and illustration really, you know, opened me up to music, <clears throat> you know, looking at um, classic album covers. You know, so um, a lot of that really is kind of intertwined with my upbringing and my worldview. Was uh, was that skateboarding time anything that uh, was, uh, you know, something that that got you close with Lupe later on? Uh, you know what? It's funny because, you know, we've had conversations. I never thought skateboarding would even be that big. And when I did it, you know, it was those cheap 
skateboards and it's like kind of like a I wouldn't even call it plastic you know it's like uh um I forgot what they call it the, the material that you would buy you used to get those skateboards at like a dollar store you know and it was real cheap um but you know it's funny to see you know later on as an adult me promoting records about skateboarding and you know that that became an art form you know surreal yeah so it, you know, when, when you talk about hip hop and you talk about, you know, uh, in the Bronx specifically, you think of like the five elements. Was there one specifically that you saw yourself being a part of and, and was your way into the culture? You know what? I mean, I always loved the DJ aspect, you know, because I was always too shy to say I want to be an MC, you know. Um, so the, the DJ and the graffiti part were, were my favorite. Um, I never had, I never thought I was a good graffiti writer, <laughs> you know, I used to try to write Zach, Z-A-K, I don't know where I got that name from, <laughs> um, I used to try to write it and tag it, and I never thought it was good, and then a lot of my older friends were way better than me, so I kind of gave that up, and I always thought, like, you know what, when I, if I can ever get money, you know, I'm gonna buy a turntable set and be like, you know, the greatest DJ ever. Or at least, you know, just tell them what to play. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that was my fallback. You know? <laughs> I, think I did pretty good for myself. Yeah. So, um, you know, where where was the first time that you actually, like, I know you talked about how you would hear rap being played on the street, but what was the first time that you actually like interacted with hip hop, like, and, and, and in a meaningful way where you were just like, oh shit, like, I, I want more of that? I mean, I would have to say probably like the late 80s. You know, um, pretty much when Run DMC, what was that mid mid eighties? Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of early eighties. I think Run DMC really really made an impact. I mean, you know, when I first heard Rob Box, I thought this was phenomenal. You know what I mean? And you know, Run DMC were one of my favorite groups growing up, and I would buy all their records, and you know, I would you know memorize the fucking songs back then, and so that's when I became like really hooked on it, and. And from from a from a like you know this is the genre that kind of represents me perspective. Mm -hmm. And were your friends into it as well? I mean, like I know that you yourself you love rock. Like yeah. you are somebody yes. who like loves Metallica, Metallica and you love yeah. like um, yeah. Megadeth and well, shit. Well, you know, it, this, you know, see that's another thing because you know me being you know a person that that likes rock or metal or punk or you know it really lends a lot to to the borough I came from. Right? You know, you're a product of your environment. I moved around several times as a as a as a young person right and when i went by the time i got to high school i already had a very good mix of friends whether they be latino like me whether they're black whether they're white you know i had a really cross section of friends and i would definitely learn from them and you know that influenced my my background and I was able to be exposed to different types of music and like it and really appreciate it. And, you know, um, being a hip hop person, being someone who was born and raised in hip hop and have that worldview. And then somebody like Run DMC, when he starts sampling guitars, you're like, oh, OK, you know, my friends like, you know, Aerosmith or, you know, introduced me to Metallica and all that. OK, this kind of makes sense because Run DMC is, you know, they're, they're the kings of rock. Right. So. They know about this too, so it made it easy and more palatable to accept all types of music. So, was this anything where, like, beyond going to like park jams up in the Bronx, that you would like extend yourself and go down into Manhattan or go to, you know, wherever like rap may be, you know, sort of bubbling up? 
I went to everything, man. I went to, you know, whether, you know, when I was, when I was barely, you know, able to get into places, you know, whether it's Latin Quarter or, you know, the tunnel, you know, which was, which was much later, Club Speed, mm -hmm. you know, places that I, I frequented back then. But I also went to CBGB's. I also went to the Pyramid Club, you know. Um, I also went, you know, hung out on the Lower East Side a lot, you know, um, back then in the 90s. So, you know, I was always very eclectic, you know, as far as, you know, what music I listened to and, and where I wanted to go. You know, I would never let one thing define me. Yeah. You know, that's something about my that really lends itself to my personality. I don't like to be told things. And, you know, I have a my mom when I was little took me to the doctor. I think I was maybe like seven or eight. Because she noticed when she would tell me something, I wouldn't respond. <laughs> so she took me to the doctor and says, listen, something's wrong with my kid. I don't know if he's hearing. I don't know if he's deaf. But this is what's going on. So they, they spend like about 40 minutes and give me all these ear tests, right? I pass the test with flying colors. And then the doctor finally sees my mom. He's like, listen. Um, good news is your son is fine. He's completely, his hearing is great. The bad news is he must be just ignoring you. And she beat my ass from the hospital back to home. Well, I'll never forget it. But it really lends itself to the fact that I never like to be told things. I never like to be told, you know what, you're, you know, Puerto Rican from the Bronx. You just listen to hip hop. Yeah. That's what, you know what I mean? Yeah. So part of that, you know, me loving like Metallica or Megadeth or Motorhead was part, you know, or embracing like the, the, the punk movement in New York and going to CBGBs and seeing those bands. Yeah. Part of it was also a defiance. Like you're not going to tell this Puerto Rican kid from the Bronx that he can't be a CBGBs. So you're not. So then at the end of high school, was there an expectation for you to do one thing or another by your parents you know what they were just happy with me graduating high school and, and 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 having the ambition to go to college you know so they didn't set you know like these these kind of uh rules or barometers like yo you have to you know be this they would just look you know nobody from your generation from your from your family has gone to college you, you wow. should really go to college right so my brother he did way better than me i think you know he's somebody i admire a lot you know he went he he out of out of the bronx he got accepted into medical school wow and you know he went to medical school in illinois and then from there he did residency in albuquerque and now he's he's the head of uh three or four er hospitals in el paso texas wow that being said right. i've never heard of him i've, I've, I've only <laughs> yeah, heard exactly. of sam crespo so i feel like you've only exactly yeah. but he's accomplished far far better things you know and it's funny <laughs> because he admires what i do he can't believe i'm actually making a living from the records and artists that i used to talk to him about when i was a kid so your brother goes off to medical school where where did you look well i believe it or not i went to college thinking you know like every other kid or you know young person at the time thinking that you had to be you know like an accountant or lawyer or doctor or what have you right so i went to baruch for accounting here in the city I hated it it was the worst time of my life <laughs> I hated it. I hated it so bad. I stopped going to classes. Well, wait, you're, you stopped going to classes your freshman year or? Yeah, my freshman, my freshman year. I completely tanked my freshman, <laughs> freshman year. Well, then, how, you know, how did you, how did you like structure your days or what did you end up doing? I mean, listen, I knew halfway in that, um, 
this year was going to be a wash. So what I did was I put in for a transfer. I went and sat with a counselor and I was just honest with them. I was like, look, this is not what I thought it would be. You know, I'm, I'm not passionate about this. These classes, I don't understand. I'm doing horrible. I'm not even going to some of them. Like, this is going to be a wash. Mind you, I got a full ride through um, financial aid. Wow. So the city was paying for me to go to school. I had a full ride. And I told him, I was like, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to piss away this money. I have an opportunity to go to college, you know, and the city pay for it. So so then he suggested a transfer. He's like, let's look at, you know, another school that might be in better fit for you. And so I, I started with liberal arts at um, at Hunter College. And it was at Hunter College that I met a professor um, and the professor taught classes in media at the time was press and public speaking. But, you know, I was doing really good, you know, knowing like the laws, like the First Amendment laws and all that. And when we had a conversation, he was asking me what I wanted to do. And I told him I didn't know. And he gave me one of the best advice ever. He's like, well, you should always look at something that you like. You should always look at something that you're passionate about. And he was like, will not you come back and see me in a week and tell me what you're passionate about? You know, and I thought about it long and hard. And, you know, part of it was filmmaking. Hmm. So I go back to him and I said, hey, you know, I like movies, you know, and I love to make movies. And he was a Caucasian guy, but he was really sympathetic to, you know, a lot of, you know, obstacles people of color. Have. Yeah. And he actually said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. That's a great that's a great um, direction. But how many people of color um, are filmmakers? And Spike Lee had just started at the time, so right. I really couldn't use Spike Lee, you know, and I really couldn't answer it. You know, I knew I knew some film history. I knew certain movies, but, you know, I didn't know Dick enough to know. But then I, I slowly found out how hard it was for people of color to break in Hollywood. So my second backup, he actually found it for me. He was like, look, you like music. You're always talking about music, music, music. Have you ever thought about making that a profession? You know, so he kind of put that in my head. And ever since then, after I graduated, I looked at opportunities to, to work at music. And I ended up working at the warehouse, believe it or not, in Hollis, Queens. And so like a lot, a lot of people might not know, what is the warehouse? Well, the warehouse basically, well, it's a warehouse, literally. But it, <laughs> the company I worked for was Relativity. But at the time, they were becoming Relativity, but they were really known as Important Records Distributor. Uh, and then they changed the name to R.E.D., um, Relativity Entertainment Distributors or something like that. So I ended up working for Red in the early incarnations. But when I, but I worked in the warehouse when they were a distributor, and they distributed a lot of things, a lot of underground records. They distributed a lot of um, underground labels, um, but they were also a record label. And obviously, you know, they put out the first Fat Joe. They put out yeah. the first Common Sense. You know, they put out the Beat Nuts. They put out Chi Ali. Yeah. You know, they put out a lot of great hip hop, you know. But you're... They invested in two genres, hip hop and early like metal and rock. So, okay. So this is like right in your wheelhouse. You were fresh out of college. Mm -hmm. Fresh what, out of college. What are, you, what are you actually doing there? Accounting. Literally working <laughs> in a warehouse. I worked in the returns department. <laughs> where where record stores when records would sit on the shelf for long periods of time and the record stores weren't selling enough of whatever title it was they would send it back and get credit wow i'm the guy who would bring who who would receive it check those records in the, the inventory in and then i was responsible for refurbishing it meaning i would take the plastic off and then i replastic i would make sure that the cds were still 
you know, in new condition, I would look at back back then there was still cassettes and I'll look at the cassettes, make sure that they wasn't, you know, fucked up or anything. Yeah. And I would rewrap it. I literally was doing that for like maybe a year and a half. And were you like, this is the music business? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know how many fucking CDs I was bringing home? <laughs> Dude, I was like, I had my music collection was sick. So, so, Wait, but what happens to the CDs like that then sit in the warehouse forever? Like, do they get sent to well, Africa in the same way that like Super Bowl no, no, uh, no. t shirts? What they do is we, we, we refurbished it. So they'll be brand new and they get put back in inventory. And then there's other record stores would say, hey, I could, I could sell that. You know what I mean? It's doing well for me. You know, so it was just like the circle of life of a record. So, so maybe maybe a store in New York wasn't selling um, I don't know wasn't wasn't selling Bone Thugs and Harmony, right? Because they were on Relativity. Yeah. Uh, but maybe there's a store in Indianapolis that can't keep it in stock. Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. it's like the circle of life. So it would get resold. Was there a you know you're from the Bronx you're you're proudly you know from up there that is where hip hop started. Fat Joe is much in the same boat. Loves hip hop. Happens to be on Relativity Records. How about your pride for, you know, your fellow Bronx native being, you know, on that label? I mean, it was incredible. You know, for, first of all, I was a fan. I thought he was, you know, bringing, I thought he was really representing the culture the right way. Plus, he's Puerto Rican yeah. like me. Yeah. So, you know, he was definitely somebody that I was like, this is incredible, you know. And um, his record came out and he was big and, you know, I never saw him. And then I, I got a chance to work in the front office. So they had a front office where the, the salespeople would be. And um, I told my boss uh, maybe a couple of months early prior to the, the new position that I was leaving the warehouse. He asked me why. And I told him, I said, look, I'm about to get a college degree and no offense to the warehouse and no offense to people <laughs> that work here. But it would be like a slap in the face to my parents if I have a college degree and I work in a warehouse. I have to figure something you know, more in line with my degree. So he was like, well, what what the fuck is your degree? You know? <laughs> and I told him it was communications, you know, and communications really encompassed. You could be music. It could be, like I said, press. It could be film. It could be television. But I told him, yeah, you know, I want to focus on the music side. So a position came up to be the assistant to the head of sales. And um, th what they would do is they would try to um, promote from within. So they would put the posting up at the warehouse so people that could be qualified, that are qualified, could could apply so he's like look i think of i know of a position that's coming up i'm gonna put your name on the sheet so he puts my name on the sheet and then he starts to notice that other people are putting their names on the sheet so unbeknownst to me he goes to the people that put their names up and he would ask them you know what are you guys doing what are you doing what do you where, where, you know where you want to go and where you at in life and a lot of people just wanted to get out the warehouse there was really no specific reason so he just, you know, ended up appealing to them saying, look, you know, Crespo, we love him. <laughs> you know, he makes it fun in here and <laughs> he's worth he's worth a shot because he actually just graduated college. And, you know, the best thing to do is that if you're not really pressed for the job, stepping aside and let him be the person that gets to interview. So, again, this is behind my back. So he has this conversation with maybe four or five people when they end up being people I actually worked with. And they all took their names off the list. Wow. So wow. by the time the interview came, it was just me. I was the only person that interviewed. Um, so when I interviewed with the guy, you know, um, I gave him my all and he loved me. And he hired me right then on the spot, right at the interview. 
That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I, I got I got to work in the um, in the front office, so to speak. So I had a computer and I assisted him with his staff, you know, and, you know, I did the, the, all the duties of an assistant. And that was where I met Fat Joe. He's actually coming down the corridor and uh, I'm, I'm actually walking towards him. Mm-hmm. And I just stopped him. I said, hey, what's up? You know, my name is Sam Crespo. I'm from the Bronx. But he wouldn't even let me finish because he heard my last name <laughs> and he freaks out. He's like, from the Bronx? Crespo? Crespo? And he just puts his hands on my shoulders. He goes, do you know my best friend is named Crespo? <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, he just goes on and tells me. His best friend, his name Crespo, is on the back of the album cover. So there's a mural in the first album of his best friend, um, who his his last name was Crespo. So ever since Jen, Fat Joe's always remembered me. That is no so matter dope. where I'm at, he always stops and talks to me like Fat Joe. And we're real close. You know, we've gotten close because you know, fast forward years later, I worked for Atlantic. Atlantic, yeah. Know, Fat Joe is is one of the pillars. You know, at the time. Uh, at the urban, at the urban um, department, he's one of the pillar artists. So you know, obviously, I got to work with him. And he's never forgotten me. He's never forgotten that day, and he's never forgotten me. Yo, so we've obviously crossed paths with him, spoken to him, and uh, you know, I think it's well known he values loyalty above everything else. So that's that's really dope to hear. No, absolutely, man. And he is loyal. He's a, he's like a great friend. And it's funny because. You know, you look at the company people keep, right? He's great friends with with Nori, and yeah. Nori is one of my best friends, artist wise, right? Yeah. Artist wise, Nori is top five five in my book. I mean, Nori is one of my best friends, and Nori has been to my baby shower. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, again, and you know, him and Joe are really tight. So yeah so you spend some time in the front office at 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 the warehouse and you see what sales is like at relativity at at, at relativity uh and you see what sales is like do you think that sales then is going to be your path forward in the music business you know what not really i kind of thought maybe more marketing so i started eyeing like product management gigs over there um, more marketing was more my thing. I, I, I used to see what the sales guys would go through and I would see them pulling their hair, <laughs> pulling their hair out. And I was like, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to have to live by, you know, trying to meet a certain quota. Yeah. So I definitely didn't want to do it. So, you know what, it did kind of impact my judgment. It influenced me telling me that I didn't want to do that, you know? So, um, you know, I, I kind of become cool with a lot of the urban marketeers over there. And um, one of the people that I become cool with was a guy that was um, early days, this kid named, they called him Rich Kid. And he basically was the lifestyle person at the time. Mm. You know, he did street teaming. Yeah. So he was someone who would invite me out. And that was really my first taste of, you know, going out there, handing out stickers or samplers and, you know, really getting a taste for, for good old fashioned street work. Okay. So let's you know, talk about yeah. New York city in the sort of mid nineties, like 93, 94, 95. What was the temperature outside? Like who was really running, you know, New York hip hop scene? I mean, I think Nas was pretty much one of the people that was at the forefront, you know, when Illmatic, you know, was out. That was just, you know, he was the pinnacle, you know. So I vividly remember that, you know. And then maybe a year or two later was what Biggie came out mm. and ran shit. And I remember, you know, I remember buying both records, you know, and I remember the electricity 
when those records came out. You know, the fact that multiple singles were being played on the radio. You know, the clubs was overran with their music. You know, I remember them being like, just that, you know, that kind of really creating that 90s renaissance was, you know, those guys. And did you understand what a street team, uh, street promotions department could be like beyond, you know, passing stickers out or posting up, you know, flyers? I knew that we were mobilizing the community to rally around an artist. You know, I knew that, you know, for every 10 people you gave a sticker or a sampler to, maybe seven were actually listening to it or putting it somewhere, you know? So, um, and then if you multiply that, you know, you know, on a given day at a let out at a club, you know, or you go to like, you know, you go to an event, you know, where there's the pen relays back, yeah. back in the day, pen relays was a big thing to go promote, you know, um, Freaknik in Atlanta, yeah. was a big thing to go promote, you know, you then, you know, you know, your impact, you knew that, okay, you know, the, the bigger the event, the stronger my frequency, you know? So were you traveling down to Freaknik? Yeah, I mean, I didn't do Freaknik. I did. I definitely did pen relays. Uh, I did some other events. Um, I definitely did the spring break in Florida, you know, in Miami. So I did that a few times for Tommy Boy. Did you go to all the the conferences too? Yeah, I went to the Jack the Rapper. Yeah, I went to obviously the Mix Show Power Summit from its inception. You know, Uh, I've been to those every year. And so when you go to to those places, at what point do you figure out that you are Sam Crespo, music industry, you know, personality? Never. Never. It never never hit me when I was doing those things, right? I just thought I was getting a leg in. I just wanted to get my my foot in the door, you know? And um, it wasn't until um, I had a meeting with two people at the same time at a conference. Uh, I was at Tommy Boy. So from 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 relativity distribution, I get to work at Tommy Boy Records, which is a legendary label with Naughty by Nature, Cool yeah. Latifah. But they had Coolio, you know, and they had, you know, they had a lot of other artists, you know. Um, some of my favorites, obviously House of Pain and Everlast. Yeah. You know, so I got to work there and I worked there for about eight, no, seven years, you know, and it was there that I went to a lot of the conferences. So towards the end, Tommy Boy was already going to be sold to Sony. They were going to be acquired by Sony 100%. They were already being financed. So we were already getting from our bosses that, look, you know, this this is going to end soon. This Who was that, Tom yeah. Silverman? Yeah. yeah. You know, Tom was very transparent with his staff. You know, he really cared about his staff. Um, you know, we, we, had, we had a weight room. We had massage once a week, a massage what? therapist. What? Yeah. Wow. This is a lot early. of people can talk shit yeah. about a lot of the early owners of, of labels. But let me tell you, I worked for Tom and Tom definitely as, as eccentric as he is and was, he also cared about his employees enough to include them even in the stuff that he liked. Wow. You know? He created a weight room and it was open to everybody. You could go there and work out. And I'm talking about there was weights. Real weight machines. <laughs> so it wasn't just an empty you know? room and it was just like, hey, he you had, can, he you had can a room do push-ups. With two treadmills. <laughs> yeah, he had a room with two treadmills. He had a, a massage therapist you sign up for and you'll get like a 20, 30-minute massage. Wow. Yeah. Like, you Wait, know, that was free? Like it was included? Yeah. That's wild. No, it was free. 
Because like free. when I worked at HBO, they had a massage therapist, but you had to pay to go. Like, so she was just like there, but she would wait for people right. to just come in. And it's like, <laughs> no. yeah, no. No, no, it was it was it was free. Like you, all, the only thing was obviously we had a lot of employees, so um, you had to sign up for it. But I signed up for it and got it, done it a few times. You know, a lot of the people that I used to talk to, whether it was on the street side, like my street teams, or you know, I also did uh, retail marketing, so I would talk to record stores and 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 district managers for record stores. Part of the conversation was like, Sam, did you get your massage today? <laughs> you know, that was a running joke, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. So it was there that, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, Tommy Boy has probably only got like a few months, maybe six months left. I got to find another job. And I run into Sean Prez, who was running Bad Boys um, Lifestyle yeah. Big Show Street, right? And then. And what's and, your relationship it, with him at this point? It was, it was good. He like, he, he knew who I was. You know, he knew me, he knew me from several conferences. Remember back then I was, um, back then I was running the lifestyle for Tommy boy. So I was known, you know, as like the kind of the guy coming up and, 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 and doing branding. Right. He was already doing it for, um, bad boy. And then Rob love was doing it for Def Jam yeah. and, and Rob and, and, and Sean had a very, um, um, competitive relationship but they were very they were they were so cool they were real tight with one another but they were definitely like competitive in the street like you know who's marketing who's whose street team is strongest was more like the the conversation yeah yeah and i walked i walked into that conversation and they both at that time we did tony touch's peacemaker project remember that compilation yes mixtape yeah so we had just did that and we crushed it <laughs> we crushed it we did a phone booth camp back then there wasn't cell phones like that there was a phone booth campaign where we put the stickers on the handles we had great um visuals we had great um poster boards we would flood the streets i mean the the, the fines that we were getting from atlanta <laughs> florida the fines from la tom was literally gonna be like you're gonna fucking bankrupt this company <laughs> um but again it was a badge of honor to walk through those conferences and people were like that's the guy that's like his street team is really like the shit. Yeah. So I walk into that conversation and they, and I start telling them, Oh, well guys, I'm going to need a job soon. And I tell them what happened and they start to literally argue who's going to take me. Wow. Rob's like, look, you know, I got you, you know, call me on Monday. And Sean Press is like, I'm going to get on the phone with Diddy this weekend, you know? So they start to argue like, who's going to take me from, from um from, from, from tom tommy boy. yeah yeah and the week that tommy boy shut his doors and i we get a severance package by the way we got a nice severance package the week that we shut our doors was the week i interviewed with kevin Lyles and rob love wow so so you go up there and what's the difference between tommy boy and def jam I mean, the I mean, the one that sticks out the most is you know I'm, I'm having an interview with Kevin Lyles and he's getting a his haircut <laughs> in his office and I've never saw that before. <laughs> I never saw a, first of all I never saw a black executive with an office that big. Yeah. Um, and then he's getting a haircut, and I never saw that before. So I'm like fucking intimidated. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> like you know, I'm, I'm you know this is the big leagues, you know. And at the time I was interviewing for. Um, uh, mix show position so that's like talking to all the djs nationally and i remember he asked me if i knew the mix show panel that was his question and at the time i only knew a handful of djs 
So I just, you know, listen, I rolled the dice, right? So I said, yeah, I do. So he's like, well, you know, name some. So, you know, I mentioned a good friend of mine that I met through my travels, Cosmic Kev out of Philadelphia. Yeah. Obviously, I knew DJ enough from hanging around my best friend, Chris Atlas. Yeah. You know, so I knew DJ enough. Um, I had no, I had, I had started doing business with Funkmaster Flex promoting the car show. Mm -hmm. You know, myself and Al Lindstrom, who's another promoter. Yes. We had ran into this, this guy at, uh, believe it or not, with De La Soul, we ran into this guy that does car shows. We ran into him at the Jacob Javis car convention, and he wanted to do something in New York but didn't kind of like have the blueprint. So we had introduced him to Flex. Wow. And he ends up, you know, doing the first Flex car show. Wow. But we were the guys that brokered it, right? So I already had a relationship. I had met Flex and, you know, Flex used to ask me, you know, what's in it for you? And I told him, I said, look, I want a job in this business and I'm going to need you as a reference one day. So that was the day when I met with Kevin Lyles and I pulled that card. I Yo, Chris Bodamus. I cashed in my chips that day. I said, oh, yeah, you know, I know Flex, you know, I know, you know, and I named some some DJs I knew from Sacramento and from Chicago. Ne needless to say, those are the only guys I really knew. Sure. <laughs> you know? So, but in the back of my brain, in the back of my brain, as I'm sweating bullets in that office, pretty much lying, I said to myself, if I get this job, there's not a DJ in America that's not going to take a phone call from Crespo at Def Jam. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, back then, you know, uh, you know, accept my records or whatever. So I rolled the dice and I ended up getting the job. So, okay. Did, did Kevin Lyles like check with any of these people or is it just like he blind faith? Believe it or not, he checked, I believe, with three people. I, I believe he checked with enough. Mm -hmm. I believe he checked with Cosmic Kevin Philly and he, and I know he checked with one of my DJ friends in um, Chicago named Vaughn Woods. Mm. Um, V-Dub, he goes by V-Dub now. And um, he had a relationship. Yeah, they have a good relationship because I know, but I know for a fact because V-Dub, you know, is one of the people that was like, you know, heads up. They're asking about you. Yeah. And was was Chris Atlas already working at Def Jam? No, no. Chris at the time had already um, started working. Doing Cornerstone, maybe. Cornerstone. Yeah, he yeah. was running the marketing over at Cornerstone. So when he had left before the shutdown too. When you when you get this job at Def Jam, who who are some of the artists who are just really running things over there? I mean, Jay Jay was running it, you know. Um, all of the Rockefeller Rockefeller was, you know, the um, what had came out. Um, I think the first Blueprint had come out mm. had just come out. Um, I believe that you know all the Murder Inc. stuff was still hitting. Mm -hmm. I remember Shanti being red hot. Yeah, you know DMX was like the biggest thing. You know. So were you um, were you there? So th this is ninety eight. Yeah. So okay, so that that's the year that DMX had two number ones in one year. No, actually, it was it was closer. To, it was two thousand because I wasn't there for the two for the two albums in one year that the X had dropped. Got it. Remember, he dropped one in the beginning of the year and then one towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, I wasn't there for that. I just, I came in right at the end, right when Survival of the Illest Tour had wrapped up. Wow. 
And the feeling there is that you guys are the number one label by far, right? It's it's you're going from Tommy Boy with you know with a lot of heat there, the but, rap label, yeah. But it's we but were, it's we but were it's killing it. But it's different going to Def Jam, right? It was so different. It was so different. You know, um, it was the number one label, but also, you know, it, these these acts that were like you know, keeping the lights on were already established and I had no I had no horse in that race. You know, it wasn't until Joe Budden that my name got attached to something from the very beginning. And that's a so, few years in. Know, so so it's jo- actually it's actually, you know, yeah, it's actually maybe like a couple of months when I already started that we started talking about Joe Button. Rob it was Rob's it was Rob's baby. Right. And Rob had Joe signed to him through a, a imprint called Spit Records, you know, and Rob's vision was, you know, to sign artists that can really rap. Wow. You know, and not get caught in the glitz and the, you know, so it was it was really like a statement to, you know, you know, have a quote unquote, you know, underground artists, but talented artists, you know. So of, of, of so that let's pedigree. so let's talk about. Uh, a record that meant a lot to us and certainly meant a lot to Joe Budden and I'm sure meant a lot to you. Uh, what do you know about Focus? Focus? I was talking more about Pump It Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, real underground. <laughs> Focus it came out before Pump It Up. Yeah. Focus was... I mean, I remember putting it out as a as a 12-inch, you know? And I remember it, you know, it didn't make the impact that we were expecting. Oh, well, you know? l- let me tell you that uh, up, in, up, up in Westchester, we loved that record. And, uh, and Did we, you? Yeah. yeah. We, we loved that, you know, Envy put it on, on his, his album. And we just loved, you know, whenever we heard it on Hot 97. It made every mixtape possible. You know, but it, it 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 just again it served the core. You know, yeah. And um, it was a tough record to work because nobody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Great record, just nobody knew who he was. It's funny because I remember when he brought us Pump It Up. It's such a departure from Focus. Yeah. Right. It's almost like he's like, okay, fuck it. This is what everybody <laughs> wants. But but Pump It Up was really true to Joe, and yeah. it was really true to Jersey. Absolutely. It was such Four a Jersey on the floor. club record. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's a staple now. Sometimes during the holiday mixes, you'll hear somebody like DJ Walla play it, you yep. know? So, so you and Joe have this relationship where, uh, you know, you're you're really, you know, taking this young kid around and he's trying to find out, you know, who he is within this business. How was it when you went to radio stations or you went to different DJs and you tried to push that product? I mean, you know, listen, you know, places like the middle of the country was 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 tough, you know, like Atlanta back then was really tough to break an East Coast artist when Atlanta's having its fucking renaissance, you know? Yeah. And um so but you know, I remember going to LA with them a few times and um they were a lot more kind of, you know, open, you know, to give him a platform. But, you know, he he still stuck out, you know, and back then music was still regional, right? Meaning like each part of the country had its own sound, you know, and Joe at the time was clearly East Coast, New York sounding, you know, New Jersey, you know. So, you know, when we were promoting him and breaking him, it really that that energy had to have come from New York and spread. I remember, you know, people, other DJs finding out about it 
because they heard the movie that Flex and the other DJs in New York made for Pump It Up. Mm. So that resonated. So by the time I would call them to see if they got the 12-inch, they would be like, yeah, I heard that Flex made a movie. You know, and this is pre-internet. You know, this is all snow word of mouth. Mm. By the way, I thought you were talking about you got served, but you're talking about like movie, like a metaphorical, like, you know, like all the noise that they were making. Yeah. Exactly. So what kind of relationship did you have with other artists there? Clearly, Nori was was one of your favorites. What about DMX? DMX, like, listen, you know, DMX is an incredible artist. And, you know, he's been through a lot, uh, but he's also put up a lot of numbers. Yeah. I had a good relationship with him. I didn't know him at all. You know, my first foray into knowing him was, you know, I'm on promo tour with, with one artist in San Francisco and DMX is recording in L.A. And um, it's actually my last assignment before I go and, and get married. And uh, so I timed it. You know, my wife is from L.A. Mm -hmm. So I timed it so that when I wrap up in San Francisco, I go back to L.A. on my time off and, you know, we get married and go have a honeymoon and um so what happened was i get a call pretty much as we're wrapping up almost wrapping up promotions in san francisco and it's it's kathy and kathy is leo cohen's assistant mm -hmm. so she calls me up she's like you have a second now mind you there's a time difference so <laughs> you know i'm getting this phone call at night in the west coast which means it's late in new york <laughs> so i'm like yeah sure like i'm thinking my heart is beating because i'm like you know Lior seldom calls me yeah what the hell did i do you know <laughs> so he gets on the phone and he's like listen you know crespo you know i was on this dj call <laughs> you know so apparently he had jumped on a dj call well i think it was the core djs when they first were starting out and you know he was like the djs i asked them what can we do for them? What are we not doing? <laughs> and a lot of DJs said that artists like DMX don't do drops for them. <laughs> I want you to get fucking drops for them. And that was terrible, Leo. That was great, but, though. That was great. But, um, but you know, in a nutshell, Leo's like, look, I want you to get on a fucking plane right now. <laughs> right now. And go to LA to this studio and get drops from DMX. <laughs> Dude, I'm fucking sweating bullets because <laughs> A, I got to fucking get out of my room, pack my shit, get the next shuttle to L.A. and, and find DMX. <laughs> and get him to do you this know? thing that he definitely so, doesn't want to do. <laughs> right, something he definitely doesn't want to do from someone he completely doesn't <laughs> So So, you know, I hightail it to L.A. I get there. I remember I get there at nighttime. So right from the rental car, I go straight to the studio. I don't hesitate. I said, and they, and by then I was already, I was introduced to his A&R. So I go and, you know, connect with the guy and I'm on my way. And, um, I go there, I get to the studio, my shit is still in the car. And I'm thinking I'm gonna go print out a drop list that I have in my computer and he'll knock it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was wait. that fucking simple. Yo, by the way, yeah, but Sam, when I go there, Sam, who hates I, authority more, you or DMX? <laughs> I definitely X beats me by a fucking <laughs> long shot, you know? So you think I don't like to be told what to do? Let me introduce you to X. So, you know, again, I never met him before, so I'm in the studio, a bunch of people who I don't know, you know? I only know, the, you know, this one guy. So, you know, he's like, look, let's just wait patiently. He's in the booth. Not not the recording booth. He's in the booth, the, the, 
the, the control room. Yeah. And, you know, he'll be out and we'll, we're going to ask him. So anyway, hours go by. <laughs> literally hours like and i'm literally watching the clock like the the arms move on the clock <laughs> to the point where maybe four hours later i'm like asleep <laughs> and all of a sudden i feel like a slap on my foot and i wake up and it's fucking nori <laughs> so nori shows up because i guess he's recording with x and nori's like what the fuck are you doing here and he's making a big deal because every time he sees me you know he lights up so he finally's like, what, what, what's up? What the fuck are you doing here? And I told him, I said, Nori, you know, Lior called me. I need to get these drops from X. And, you know, I'm here and I'm waiting for him. And he's like, well, does X know you're here? And I'm like, well, I'm assuming so. He hasn't been out of the control room. He's like, well, have you met him? And I was like, no. He's like, fuck that shit. Come with me. <laughs> and he literally walks me into the control room. And he starts to say, X, you got your label guy here waiting. You've had him here for hours. X is just looking at me. And then Nori goes in, listen, this is your label guy. This is your radio guy. This is the guy who's going to get you airplay. This is a good guy. I know Crespo for years. So he just starts to fucking go down my fucking resume. And <laughs> for me. You know, X is still not impressed. You know <laughs> what I mean? So finally, just X is like, you know, um, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, I need to get these drops for the DJs. You know, if we give them these drops, it'll give them more incentive to support your record. It's really goodwill. So, you know, he just kind of looks down and looks at me. He's like, all right, we'll do them in a few minutes. So then, you know, I go back to the other room and a few more hours go by. <laughs> you know, finally, I hear like people coming out of the control room. X is ready to leave. So I'm like, oh, you know, um, before we leave, can we do these drops? <laughs> and X is like, nah, let's go to the hotel. We'll do the <laughs> Mind you, he forgets my name and he calls me Drops. <laughs> so my name the whole weekend was Drops. Wait, so the whole like, weekend. Drops, you coming? We're going to the hotel. So I had to go to the hotel. Hours go by. So finally, to make a long story short, you know, a whole day went by. Oh and we're God. in the next evening of the next day. And by then, I already, uh, we ate with X. We we went to the park, and at the time, he was really into remote control cars. Yep, yep. So we rode the cars. Like, <laughs> I had a whole adventure with the guy. So finally, I go in to see him at his room, and I have a little recorder. And I go there, and I said, okay, if I have to fucking beg and cry, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I go in there, and I'm like, X, I really got to get these drops done. You know? So he's looking at me. He's like, really? Like... Why Why you want these jobs? Like, I don't want to do them. And I'm like, X, let's just do a few of them. Say we did it. Uh, and then I just start to break down. I'm like, look, I'm getting married tomorrow. <laughs> so he just jumps up. And like, you can see, like, the enthusiasm. He's like, what? You're getting married when? This weekend? He's like, fuck that shit. We're going to go to Vegas tonight and fuck everything in sight. And, yo, he meant it. He fucking meant it. So I'm like, no, 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 X, X. The gift that you can give me is do these drops. So he finally just grabs the recorder and runs through the drops. Oh I God. think half of them were even barely audible, <laughs> you know. But the fact that matters, I got a recording of him doing some of the drops. Oh my God! I fucking, you know, sent it over <laughs> to 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 New York to our engineer there, and um, I ended up getting married that weekend. <laughs> Mind you, with no sleep. Oh my with God! Bags under my eyes. That is incredible. Yeah. 
And it, you know, I see, I saw him a couple of like uh, weeks later, and he actually remembered it. He's Did you know actually, your name? And he called me Drops. Drops, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Sam, uh, when you when you think back to uh, those early two thousands Def Jam years, who was the most important DJ to your career at that point? I mean, you know, there was a guy um, in Atlanta named Emperor Cersei. Cersei was um, the head guy at uh, at HTA in Atlanta. He also ran their DJ calls for Radio One, which is a cluster of stations, right? Which is a, a independent, you know, which is uh, a company that owns several stations. So he was an influential guy to know, and I had a relationship with him. And so he was, it was just to get him to pick up the phone and, and discuss records was a big deal, mm. you know? Um, you know, Flex, obviously, for New York and, and DJ Enough, you know, was still back then, those guys were definitely wheeling what New York was, was influencing, you know, what, what was going on. So those guys were important. Yeah. Wait, when you pitch records, like, what do you go in there with? Because it, it, it can't just be like, do this, but, you know, as a favor. But there was more guys, too. You know, Felly Fell in L.A. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. he was, you know, when I was at Def Jam, he was a big, you know, supporter and partner of ours. You know, um, there's Vaughn in San Francisco mm-hmm. at KML, which yep. is a very important station. You know, I mentioned Cosmic Kev early in Philadelphia, like, you know, you really, you know, need his stamp to really break music out there back then. Chubby Chubb in Boston, you know. So, you know, those guys were all, you know, people that were important to, you know, helping me, you know, maintain my stature and break records. Yeah. And can you explain to people who may not know, you know, what record pools are or were or what the impact they had was? Yeah. yeah. Record pools were, you know, was a was a, was a organization in people's regions that pretty much what they did was, you know, they got records from record labels and they in turn have a pool of DJs. That's where the pool comes from that they distribute the music to. And those DJs are in the clubs or in the, you know, lounges, you know, or in the park, you know, or in places, you know, they, they're active DJs that are out there breaking it on the ground level and the pools were influential. So it was important for you to give the pools records, you know, so that they could put them in the bin. So the members come in, your records is in the stash. And can you also talk about uh, the cities that are super important in terms of like breaking a record and then upstreaming them? I'm talking about like Hartford and there's some like down in like, you know, the Southwest that are really important where it's like it's sort of like a minor league baseball system where it's like if it works there, it'll go to the next level and the next level and the next level. And then you get to the major leagues. I mean, pre pre Internet. Yeah. You know, it was all breaking it regional and then taking that story to some place that wasn't typically the region of an artist you know now with the internet with youtube with like you said with upstreaming all that has changed you know um it's kind of become an equal playing field in in a sense right but back then you know if you had a southern artist then clearly you needed your texas you needed your georgia you needed you know a lot of the you know your tennessees you know you needed the cluster of stations within those cities you know, for example, Tennessee, you needed Nashville, you needed Memphis, you know, to, to really develop an artist regionally. And then you take that story and then just go to the next place. Next place will probably be the Midwest, 
Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, Indianapolis, you know, and so on and so forth. So back then it took longer times, you know, longer time to break a record or develop an artist, you know. Now it's a completely different time. It's yeah, a, you, yeah you just throw yeah. it on TikTok and then, you know, you do a, uh, you have somebody baking, uh, <laughs> you know, and hope that it, that it goes viral. Yeah, now the influencers are really the people, the gatekeepers, you know, that maybe a programmer or DJ was back then as far as the front front line, you know? Yeah. So, Sam, when did you know that it was time to leave Def Jam, and did you know that Atlantic Records was going to be your next stop? I didn't know. I mean, honestly, I, I got the call for it to go to, you know, I was invited to Atlantic, you know, <clears throat> kind of unsuspectingly. I might have done it. I might have influenced it subliminally, but I it definitely even when I got the call, I was like, "Whoa, what?" You know, <laughs> um, and I got the call from several people, but the first one, believe it or not, was uh, was Craig Kalman and Ronnie Johnson, the late Ronnie Johnson. Yeah, passed away, but he was the um, he was my mentor and actually somebody who to this day I model myself after because he was a real human being. Um, so he really like nurtured me. He really took me under his wing. He believed in me. You know, he, he called me up and he was like, I need you here at Atlantic. And when I met with him, he was, he was honest. He was like, look, Atlantic doesn't have the lifestyle cachet that Def Jam has, but you know, we have some great artists that can benefit from your, you know, from your, you know, the direction as far as, you know, this mix show thing you, you, you're great at. So, um, you know, when I went to Atlantic, Atlantic wasn't known like, you know, the way Def Jam or Tommy Boy was. They weren't known like that. They were just a record label that had artists signed. They had some success with like Nappy Roots or whatever. They had just started breaking um, T.I. Yeah. big. Yeah. You know, they had they had some really great success with Fabulous, you know. I mean, obviously, they have a history with Little Kim sure. and the Mafia and all that. But, you know, as a label, right, people weren't fans of the label. Like, people were fanatical about Def Jam. So it was yeah. kind of two different things, you know? There wasn't, like, Def a Jam culture, was more of a necessarily. a lifestyle label, yeah. Yeah. whereas Atlantic is a record label. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I went there and, you know, I met with them. And, 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 and they really genuinely, him and Kalman, I met with Kalman, you know, they really wanted me. They really wanted me. They felt like this is, you know, you're what's missing here. You know, and by that time, I was already in the reggaeton space because mm. I had met Nori. a manager <laughs> to Daddy Yankee and his manager at the time had hired me to cross Gasolina over. Yeah. So now my name is starting to be thrown around in back. Back then they called it uh, Latin Urban, which are Latin stations that play urban music. Right. Yeah. And this was reggae reggaeton at the time. So my name is being thrown in the conversation because I'm one of the guys that's literally giving this record out in the States. And um, Craig Kalman at the time was looking to sign reggaeton artists. So he keeps hearing my name as, oh, you know, there's this guy from Def Jam that's giving people these records, you know. So he, he heard about he heard so, about drops so from Def Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Say again? I said he heard about drops from Def Jam. <laughs> right. They're like, who the fuck is Drops? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, so as I meet Craig Kalman, I, I also run into them, him and, and Ronnie Johnson at Madison Square Garden at a Daddy Yankee show on backstage. And they're like, 
what the fuck are you doing here? You know? <laughs> and then they, they, they're like, oh, he's friends with Prado. Prado is Daddy Yankee's manager. And this guy is like, I think that kind of like upped the ante for Kalman to, to bring me over because he felt like, okay, he's he knows what's going on. He sees this wave, you know? So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I kind of ended up at Atlanta. So was it weird then when you know, the leadership from Def Jam made their way over to Atlantic after you? Well, no, they were already, the leadership was already there. Mm. You know, it like Leo had left to go to, you know, to run Warner. Mm-hmm. So he was there already. Julie Greenwell had left Atlantic. And Kevin. To, no, she, she left Def Jam. Well, Island, yeah. Island Def Jam. Kevin had already left. They, those, those are the three people I were my bosses and, you know, my mentors at Def Jam, right? Yeah, yeah. So they had already left. Um, so I'm sure when my name came up, they were like, that's the guy. But again, you know, they, you can't poach. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm I'm hearing from the right people. I'm hearing from, you know, Kalman and... and, and Ronnie and Johnson. Ronnie Johnson, yeah. yeah. You know, but I'm sure that my people, you know, were like... Yeah, why wouldn't he come over here? <laughs> so you go over there, and uh, who are some of the artists that you start working with when you land at uh, at twelve ninety? Fabulous, Ti, uh, Trey Songs had just gotten signed. Mm. Yeah, um, and then later on, I think maybe you know two three years in, you know, we start. Uh, we start breaking with Khalifa with black and yellow. Yep. Yeah. So like, tell me your best, uh, hot 97, uh, summer jam story. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really have a summer. I mean, the early days of summer jam, I couldn't even get in, <laughs> you know, we didn't have a ticket and we didn't have an act on the bill. So I remember being in the parking lot, handing stuff out. And I remember when there used to be riots in the parking lot where people would bum rush the fence. There used to be a fence they would put up <laughs> and people would bum rush it pretty much about like nine, 10 o'clock to catch the closing act. You know, I remember like all that type of craziness, but I don't really have a, you know, a summer jam, summer jam story. Um, when you think of, of young tip, uh, what, what sticks out to you and, and makes him so successful uh, when it comes to his personality beyond just the music? I mean, you know, early on, if you ever like talk to Tip outside of, you know, the music that he makes, he's very intelligent. He's almost like scary intelligent, <laughs> you know, like he knows his shit. He knows his shit about, you know, politics, but he also knows his shit about like the film industry, you know, like he, he's the type of person that I've, you know, kind of noticed it when he gets into something, he studies it. And I think, you know, I think that's his secret weapon and his superpower. So you're you're at Atlantic and uh you know you're you're working with artists who are not just from New York and not just that like New York Def Jam sort of uh vibe. The mold, yeah. yeah. Does it feel weird working with an artist from Pittsburgh with an artist from Atlanta with an artist from, you know, Puerto Rico or wherever? No, cuz I think by then I was already kind of transitioning in that space. You know, even though Def Jam was still, you know, heavy um East Coast artist wise, I was already like knowing what was going on through my DJs, knowing, you know, what what the what 
was developing. So it wasn't it wasn't that hard for me to kind of, you know, work with artists from different regions and kind of understand how to break them. Yeah. yeah. What's you know, a lot of them a lot of them would actually give me the blueprint. We say, hey, you know, you know, you know, like Wiz already had several DJs he was um, getting support from already. So he would, you know, say some names of people that, you know, and his interactions while he toured so that it was easy for me to go in and follow up. Yeah. I mean, but with Wiz, he had already been off of one label and coming into um, basically the same label, same building. And so what is his relationship? Like, Was it immediately good? Yeah, I mean, for me it was because the guy, the guy who worked his records, this guy named Los, Los um, was at Warner Brothers, worked the Wiz records, and then Los was the same guy that told Wiz, "You're in good hands with Crespo." So he vouched for me, and so when my first working with Wiz was so smooth, it was like, "Oh, you're Los's friend. He says you're gonna take care of me." Sam, when you when you think about, you know, uh, a lot of like, you know, competition in the music business and a lot of like executives who might want to, you know, really like uh, stand off from other executives and set themselves apart by putting other people down. How do you think that you've managed to stay above the fray and have such a solid reputation? Thank you, first of all, for that compliment. Um, Listen, it's 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 karma. You know what I mean? Like. I, even despite, you know, I've had people throw shade at me and I've had haters in in the industry, you know, but I've never, you know, I don't acknowledge them. I don't give them strength. Right. So I always want to support people to come up on the, from me, you know, Um, there's people now that are executives that either interned for me or were like street reps, you know, you know, June Cardona at Epic, you know, Niles at Capitol, are all people that, you know, I like to think that they learned a lot from me. Mm-hmm. And um, that goodwill is, is, you know, I'm hoping that they're going to nurture somebody under them, you know. And, and you, you know, it's the ecosystem of the music business it's for us to keep keep the cycle going and not to be threatened. You know, I listen, I know I, I'm passionate about what I do, right, to the extent that it's my passion that makes me, you know, successful at what i do and it doesn't make me fearful that someone's gonna take my job yeah um how is it uh when you found out that you were gonna have a daughter and how did that affect you know your your work life for somebody who you know would have to go to a showcase late at night would have to go stop by this club or that club to see djs and get up early in the morning to do a round with you know an artist that was visiting new york yeah, I mean, look, you know, shout out to my wife, you know, Shantae. She, you know, held me down. I mean, she gave me a beautiful daughter. Um, it was when I found out I was in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, when she first told me, I, I was really quiet and it was surreal because and she thought she was like, damn, that's the reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> I'll never forget that. You know, she thought I was like, you know, but but that's But then I, you went to the doctor how... and, and the doctor was just like, no, 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 no. Then I waited to see how the baby looked. <laughs> and then I said, oh, it is my baby. So, but, um, but look, it was the greatest. It was the greatest. One of the greatest, you know, moments of my life, you know, and then, you know, now 
14 years later, she's an amazing young individual, caring, nurturing, loves music like her dad. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's it was one of the greatest, you know, it's the greatest reward for a human being to have is to have a child and somebody is going to, you know, contribute to the world, right? And keep your name going. So um, it was a big deal. And But, you know, making the adjustment because I was going out a lot, you know, I had to curtail that. You know, and I had to be around for her. So I did, and my wife held me down. But then the times that I had to travel, my wife was like, we, you know, I have it. I got the home. You go go for a week's tour with Wiz and, you know, don't fuck no bitches. And, <laughs> you know, see you when you get back, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, you know, that was really what, you know, it gave me a lot of drive, you know. and And it also made me cautious now. So now I can't you know, fly off the handle, fly out the mouth. Now I have to really be about my business because now I have people that depend on me. Yeah. You know, I can't be rec reckless with my career. So it gave me more purpose. It gave me, you know, a more solid foundation. Yeah. I want to shout out uh, your wife because she was the first one of uh, the two of you to uh, to be a fan of ours. Oh, and this so, is true. Yeah. And and I, I think it still remains to be seen whether or not you actually are a fan of ours, <laughs> but at least your wife is. Yeah, I'm still on the fence. She loves yeah. you guys. I'm like, I don't know about these guys. Sam, uh, you know, obviously your, your daughter is a super high point. Um, tell us what it was like when you found out that uh, you had cancer. Oh man, you know, it was it was weird, man, because again, I don't react the way people think I'm going to react. So, you know, when I, you know, I get the phone call, you know, the doctor's like, you know, um, I, I we need to, you know, speak to you. Do do you do you want to come in? They gave me the option, you know, do you do you come in or do we do it over the phone? And I guess they, you know they don't want to do it over the phone. So then I told the doctor, look, you know, I want to have my brother on the line because he's a he's a physician, he's a doctor. So I I conference my brother and and the, and the doctor says, listen, you know, Mr. Crespo, you know, we found the you know we examined the tumor you know that we took out from your lower intestine, and it's cancer. It's a, a, a carcinoma. <clears throat> cancer which is an aggressive cancer and they're like you know the good thing is that you know we got all of it out but we found a microscopic spread in your blood which means you have to do chemotherapy so you know you know my family was super supportive my daughter was very young at the time so when i was going in another hospital she didn't know what was going on so my wife kudos to her she you know explained it to her she my wife felt like you know what we're not going to shelter her from this you know, God forbid something happens, you know, it's going to be even harder to explain to her. So let's explain to her as we're going through it. And that's what she did. And my daughter was, you know, understanding that, you know, daddy, you know, wasn't right and, you know, didn't have something that was, um, you know, right with him and they're going to fix him. And, you know, she 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 learned about it as we went through the process. And she even did a report for her school about her daddy having cancer. So that was therapeutic, you know, and, you know, she, you know, was so brave, you know, because you think about a child learning that your parents could have a fatal disease, you know what I mean? You could think about what goes through their heads at like seven, eight years old, you know? What'd your mom say? I mean, my mom was like my biggest advocate. She was like, you're going to beat this. She had complete faith. You're going to beat this. You're going to be fine. So she didn't fray at all. Did you have complete faith? 
You know, there was times where you think about it and you're sitting in the hospital bed and you're like, you know, am I going to wake up tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, you know, what if they didn't get it all out? You know, so there was there was definitely times that, you know, you you sit there and you ponder that, you know, um, I kept as much face as I could, you know, to go through it and, and finish it. And, you know, thank God I'm over five years in remission. Um, so, you know, there was definitely times that you you, you kind of question your mortality. What did uh, what did Atlantic Records mean to you at that point? I mean, uh, it's crazy because um, <clears throat> they were like, take your time. Your job is here was pretty much their attitude was like, take your time. Your job is here. And, you know, I did. I took as much time. Sometimes I worked. Sometimes I didn't, you know, since so I would let them know, you know, um, I had a partner at the time that worked mix show with me, Damon Gales, who came with me from Rockefeller Def Jam. And, yep. you know, he held me down when I couldn't work. But then I would go to work when, you know, I had a, I had a bag that every week, every other week I had to attach myself yeah. to. Right. It's a bag with a waist thing and there's medicine, a cocktail that goes into your bloodstream and it's they give you a port in your chest. So I had that and I would go to work with it. And there was times that that makes you groggy. And my bosses would be like, close your office and take a nap. You know, there's a there's obviously, you know, people like to generalize and there's there's a preconception of what the music business and and what each building would be like. And I think that like listening to you and, you know, Jeff and I have been around long enough to know, you know, what is true, what is not and what are, you know, just outside sort of voices. Or we just make it up, you know, (laughs) when when we don't like the answer. (laughs) But but I think like hearing you talk about, you know, what Tom Silverman brought to Tommy Boy and how he looked after his employees or what, you know, Julian Craig and Kaiser and everybody over at Atlantic does, you know, and we've talked, you know, enough to employees over there. We know, you know, what what Julie meant for for Marsha and and other women who have had their kids and, you know, allow them the time or the the opportunity to bring their kids in, whatever. But hearing what Atlantic did for you, too, with your bosses, um, I think that's that's high praise and and should be, you know, uh, saluted. Listen, we're all human beings and it's easy to portray the music business as this big, bad wolf, you know, Um until you live through it, you know? And I think a lot of people, you know, make that assumption because they look at it on the surface, you know, and say, you know, record labels are evil or executives are evil, but we're all human beings. My experience with these executives wasn't the case, was was on a humanistic level. You know, um, prior to having my, my daughter, my wife had a miscarriage years before that when I was at Def Jam. And when Lior found out that Shantae had a miscarriage, he went, ballistic. He called me, he checked on me and her. He offered to send us to a resort so we could clear our minds. He would pay for it. He would pay for it, take as much time. I got a call from Julie Greenwald and at that time she was running Island Music and she said, do not worry about Def Cam. Don't worry about Kem Allows. I just checked him. He is not going to bother you. Um, And we're with you. And Rob Love was a great supporter because he went up there and he told them what I went through. He was with me when I got the call and he made sure I got on a red eye from New York to L.A. to be with my fiance at that, you know, that very rough time in my life. And 
Def Jam held me down. That's beautiful. Yeah. So it's, you know, these are human beings and they have families and they understand. Yeah. I can go into any of their offices, you know, to this day and say, you know, this is my issue. I'm going through this. And, you know, they all would be supportive from Julie Greenwald to Juliet Jones, who I report to now at Urban, to Mike Kaiser. They all would say, you know, if you're going through that, you know, you know, we're going to support you. Take your time. We'll figure it out. Um, That's been my experience, you know? Yeah. Sam, uh, all these years later, with all this music, you know, executive uh, time under your belt, are you still the same kid from from the Bronx? Do you still have that same excitement, you know, when you listen to a record these days as you did back then? I do, even though my daughter thinks I'm a little out of touch. She'll laugh at me. Like, I was like the biggest Uzi fan at the office. Yeah. And so is she. And, um, you know, she would make fun of me like, you know, you're too old to be listening to little Uzi. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but you you loved, you loved how Uzi had the same, you know, type of Metallica logo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love, and his dark, I love all the dark shit, you know, he's fucking rocking pentagrams and all types of crazy shit, you know? So I love that. I love that rebellious nature of him, you know? Um, but yeah, listen, you know, I still, there's still, there's still that 12 year old kid in me, you know, I do connect with music that way, you know, on all levels, you know? So, you know, if, if, you know, if there's certain, there's certain records that when we meet, I talk about and I, and I give the label, you know, answer. Right. But then there's certain records that I actually put my name on. Like, for example, most recently, Don Tolliver, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. He has a record called After Party. Right when I sent that record out, I went on the record with my with my team, with my boss, Juliet, and I said, this record is a record. Mm. And I put my name on it, and she stamped she, she stamped me on that record. She said, hey, guys, Crespo's feeling passionate about this record, you know? <laughs> and she would alert her team, like, pay attention, because Crespo thinks that there's some serious, you know, energy on this record, you know? So to this day, I still take my chances and and you know vouch records like i was 12 years old yeah Yeah. i mean like are there any that you really put your like you you really like went out on the line for and just like did not work yeah um and it wasn't even a rap record christina million yeah Mm. record um drop it low or dip it low i mean yeah, Dip It Low. Yo, Dip It Low is a that's a jam. For Dip I, it Low. I love I that song. I thought Dip It Low was a, a huge. It's I a great record. I thought that was a great record. Listen, we're fans of Focus. We're fans of Dip It Low. Yeah, great. I like I like any record that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure there was probably some. Um, you know what record I was a big fan of too? That now it's a big record, but when it first came out, it was really tough to get air. Like, wasn't wasn't a smash at Mick Show. What's that? Was um, is it the uh, the Free Ray record? Um, what we da, do? Da, 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 um, Flipside. Oh, oh, great record. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, great record now because you hear it on every mix during the holidays. But yeah. It was that record was a tough record, man. I wasn't getting a lot of airplay when we first when I first sent that record out. Yeah, I think that what really happened was that the instrumental kept getting played during like morning show on Hot ninety seven, and so the 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 audio bed was always in the background. And then mm-hmm. at a certain point, then it's like okay, well, then you just start hearing it everywhere again. 
Right. I mean, and look, you know what? Speaking of, you know, are there artists that you still feel like enthusiastic about? Um, Juicy Fruit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, rapper out of Memphis. Yes. You know, I love all her records. I love her imaging. I love her. You know, you know, um, uh, we did. I did great pushing one of her records at Mick Show, but it wasn't streaming. You know, so it's sometimes, you know, you got to wait for it. You know, I think she's going to catch she's going to catch her footing. Um, but, you know, again, you know, it's one of those records that, you know, didn't deliver the successes that we were looking for. Yeah. By the way, we were going to have Juicy Fruit over here right when quarantine like first went down. Yeah. So the middle of March, like Man, that. You gotta ve- have her. She has such a great story. Her story's crazy. Yeah. Her story's phenomenal. Sam, yeah. It's literally like a movie. Out of all of the like tedious things that come with you know your job, what's the what's the one thing that like you know had this been an ordinary day in your life that you would have been like oh I got to do this again that you miss right now? I mean, you know what? I just miss going into the office, mm. getting that therapy. You know, seeing my coworkers in person, you know, we would we would go in my office maybe two times out, three times out the week, if not every day. And we would kick it in my office like it's a fucking barbershop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I miss that camaraderie. Right. That human interaction, because I also felt that it was therapeutic. And then when it was time to work these records and get to work you know, you feel like you have a clear mind, you know? So I really miss that more so than an actual, like, specific routine. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple things before we let you go. One is uh, there was a lot of confusion around the time that Mac Miller was bubbling up that people thought because you were working some of his records that he was definitely going to sign uh, at Atlantic. What do you remember mm-hmm. about that time and, and young Mac Miller? Well, I thought so, too. You know, that came about because I became cool with... Um, Benji with the guys, the guys at Ross room. Yeah. yeah. Um, Benji. That was Artie. Yeah, Artie Benji. and Benji. Yeah. Benji and Artie and Artie kind of asked me because at the time, you know, they were just, it was just Artie and, and Benji pretty much maybe one other person, but you know, they didn't have a staff like that. So they had Mac Miller. Artie called me super enthusiastic. I loved, I met Mac already on the road. Uh, I think I was with, uh, I don't know if I was with Wiz or with Will, but uh, I met Mac on the road. I went to a few, uh, two of his shows at Irving Plaza and I loved it. You know, I loved the guy's music. I loved him. His energy was incredible. Yeah. Um, he was a very likable guy, very approachable. And so, you know, Artie was like, yo, do you mind like sending this out? So I, you know, I do what I do. I sent it out, <laughs> sent it out a few times. And a lot of people, you know, because of the, the Rossroom affiliation automatically thought it would fall. I thought it was automatically going to default to Atlantic too. Yeah. I was fighting for him to be on Atlantic, but it didn't come to, to fruition. But yeah, a lot of people still um, attach, you know, um, him as one of my artists. And uh, do you have a good Busta Rhyme story? I don't. I mean, I, <laughs> I love Busta. No, I don't. I mean, we've always had great interactions, you know? I mean, you know, Busta is a great artist but he's also you know uh, a, a great executive you know he's really like passionate about any artist he puts his stamp on you know and with ot genesis we had a lot of good laughs you know i don't have a great story i just you know remember buster just calling us up and calling me up and just firing up he's good at firing people up <laughs> um one of our favorite things uh is watching 
old Hot 97 either interviews or performances and seeing friends of ours now back then <sighs> in the background. And Sam is there a lot of the time. It's funny to see Kaiser in, in different videos. Um, what's one Hot 97 memory that you have that you were so glad to be in that room? Well, listen, it has it's, it's, <laughs> it's real simple. You're going to love this one. I hope you do. Um, so I had Lupe. Was it Lupe? Yeah. So I had Lupe scheduled to do Angie's show. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, he's doing promo and he's doing different things. So he gets delayed and I'm already at the station in the booth with Angie. So I get the call. He's not going to make it. So, you know, I'm in the booth <laughs> right before commercial and I tell Angie, Angie, so Lupe's not going to make the interview. So she's like, what? <laughs> Listen, he's not going to make the interview. Some issues came up. He's not going to make it in time. Because remember, this is a live radio show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So back then it was live. Yeah. So she's like, well, you know, I got to fill the time somehow. So as soon as she cuts the mic on, she tells New York, well, I had Lupe scheduled for an interview. He's not going to make it. But I have his record rep, <laughs> Sam Crespo. So then she just starts to interview me. Starts to ask me questions, and of course, I start answering. <laughs> my wife at the time is working at E1. Oh my god! And she starts to call me like, "Are you on the radio?" Because <laughs> she thought she was being pranked. Because somebody, one of her coworkers, was like, "Yo, Crespo's on the air right now." <laughs> so yeah, so Angie interviewed me about, you know, what do, you, how do you feel about artists that don't show up to radio <laughs> and all this stuff? So I go on, and of course, I'm like giving them like, look. You know, the artists do promo, so they have, you know, appointments throughout the day. And sometimes, you know, they run into snags, you know, oh where they be traffic or things that run over. And unfortunately, this is one of them. <laughs> Wait, who handles yeah. your press? <laughs> Ron Stu, <Crespo>. apparently. <laughs> Ron has pushed for this interview for the longest time. Listen, Sam... Uh, we love you so much. We love your your journey and and the work that you put in. And uh, we're so thrilled to to hear your complete story and and have you on the podcast. And uh, hopefully, when when this thing is all over or we're able to see you in real real life again, we'll look forward to that. And until then, be well. All right. Listen, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for the support. And um, you know. Shout out to Ron Stu. He definitely want this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope Ron, if we if we know we have one stream, it's gonna be Ron. Yeah. <laughs> um, so shout out to him and Baby Cairo. Yeah. Um, but listen, more importantly, you know, um, you guys asked me before about DJs who I have relationships with, and I kind of not like I mistakenly didn't acknowledge DJ Drama, who's mm -hmm. one of my best friends, and I think I I did that by accident because I don't even look at him as a Drama is one of the persons that I had called up, right? Real quick. I called him up and um, I was in my bag about where we're going in this industry as far as executives and artists. And I just fucking put, I kind of called him to the back. I was like, what are you doing? What are you, what's your next phase? At the time, he was putting out a record with E1. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, what are you going to do? Like, this shit is going to run out. You're going to eventually be too old to put records out. Like, what are you doing? So I'm like literally having this conversation with him. He's like, Crespo, are you fucking all right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, listen, I love you and I care about you. And I just am thinking that you're a talented guy. You have your finger on the pulse. You should be doing something on an executive level. So I 
you ever thought about hiring a DJ as an A&R? Because these DJs, they have their finger on the pulse. This, and this particular DJ knows producers, knows artists, has a great rapport. He's looked up to by these artists and these younger artists. It would make perfect sense. So Craig was like, holy shit, you're 100% right. Can you get him here ASAP? So I get them to come in and have a meeting. Of course, drama nails them to the meeting, kills it, and ends up becoming an executive A&R at Atlantic Records, which snowballs, and he and Cannon bring us Little Uzi Vert. Yeah, and then Jack Harlow. And Little Uzi Vert yeah. keeps the lights on, and Jack Harlow. Yeah. yeah. Generation so I now. I share that story, and you know, my best, one of my best friends is also responsible for keeping me employed by bringing some <laughs> artists to Atlantic. Again, that's an example of the circle of life and the ecosystem of record Absolutely right. Sam, we love you. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Take care, my brother. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You're Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's The Real. No apostrophe, no spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real. If people want to find out more about what's going on with us, where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. You can also go to patreon.com slash it's the real that's a great way to help support us twitter at it's the real and instagram at it's the real if you want to find any of our old episodes or old episodes that honestly feel like new episodes to you you can always go to spotify or any other streaming platform we are on wherever you listen to podcasts including the one that you're listening to right now jeff now's the time of the podcast where we like to shout people out who would you like to shout out today I want to shout out Candace Brown, who signed up for our Patreon last week and who is very much appreciated both on Twitter and on email. Shout out to her. I would like to shout out Jeff and Jane, who sent over our masks that Peter Rosenberg denigrated and said it looked like diapers. So shout out to Aunt Jane. We appreciate you. Keep sending those masks. Keep wearing those masks. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys next week. Right.